0: everybody. What's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you today. So in this podcast, which I just got done recording, it's basically a part one of a refutation of Dr. Mark Hitchcock's presentation that he gave at the 2011 Pre-Trib Study Group Conference. It's entitled An Overview of Pre-Tribulational Arguments. Dr. Mark Hitchcock seems like a really good guy. And um, he is a guy that's an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written uh, a lot of books on various subjects, but uh, also on the pre-trib rapture is a focus of his. So he's a guy that because of his connection to Dallas, he's a professor, he's got a PhD. This is relatively recent, 2011. So these should represent... Uh, fair, a fair representation of uh, uh, arguments for the pre-tribulational position. That's why I chose him specifically. Um, like I said, I do respect him, and and I think that, like all these issues, he's a brother in Christ, and at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Uh, but when we get into argumentation, it's okay to argue uh, about these things. That's how That's how, in the past, a lot of theology got figured out, is through good argumentation. So we're going to take a look at that. This is going to be part one. I will probably get part two done after uh, the Christmas uh, season. One quick show note, I wanted to offer $200 to anybody that comes up with the name for the Pre-Wrath film, the Pre-Wrath documentary I've been working on. You can go to Pre-WrathMovie.com, get a hold of me there. You can go to BibleProphecyTalk.com to get a hold of me. Uh, If you want to know what I'm looking for, go to the previous podcast and listen to the tail end of that podcast where I go into detail about what I'm looking for in a title, subtitle. Uh, and then you could submit it to my email or Twitter or wherever. And if it's the one that we end up using or it's just the one that I know, hey, this is it, this is the winner, then I'll give you $200. So, uh, yeah, without any further ado, let's get into the podcast.
1: But I want to begin with uh, the P and pre-trib and our acronym. And I, uh, for this one, I use uh, the place of the church in Revelation the place of the church in the book of Revelation. I think Robbie mentioned this yesterday. But if the church is going to experience any or all of the coming tribulation, one would naturally expect that the most in-depth, lengthy, detailed presentation of the tribulation would include an account of the church's role during that period of time. But remarkably... In the key section on the tribulation in the Bible, Revelation 4 through 18, there's an absolute silence about the church, at least about the church on earth. And I think that silence is deafening. You all know the Greek word uh, for church is ekklesia, and that word occurs 20 times in the book of Revelation, 19 times in the first three chapters, and it doesn't occur again until chapter 22 and uh, verse 16. And to me, that, that absolute silence about the church is striking and unexplainable if the church continues on earth during the time of the tribulation. Post-tribulationists, though, they counter this argument by noting that while the church does not appear in chapters 4 through 18, or the word church doesn't appear, they would say that the word saints occurs several times in this section. And so they would say, well, the saints there that are referred to, that's a reference uh, to the church on earth. The problem, I think, with this argument is... When you look at just the word saints, it doesn't tell you what kind of saints they are because we would agree that the word saints refers to those who know the Lord, but there's Old Testament saints, uh, there are church-age saints, and there are tribulation-age saints. So which of these is it referring to? And of course, I would argue from the context of the book of Revelation that these are uh, tribulation saints who are on the earth. People who've been saved after the rapture of the church who are on earth during that time. It's not... Uh, church-age believers.
0: So there are a lot of problems with this argument that the word church doesn't appear in Revelation 4 through 18, and I honestly can't believe it made his top seven reasons to believe the pre-trib rapture, as it is an argument that many pre-tribulationalists recognize as fallacious, that is to say, containing a fallacy, particularly the word concept fallacy, but we'll talk about some of those as we get into this. One of the things that gets me about this argument is just the -the on-the-face problem with it. Can you imagine any doctrine? Have you ever been in a Bible study or had a teaching or a professor or anything try to argue any minor doctrine with an argument like this? The word concept fallacy? The word uh, uh, for tithing doesn't appear in Philippians. Therefore, we know that uh, Philippians isn't talking about tithing. The word church doesn't appear in Galatians two through six. Is that not about the church? It's absent from Mark, Luke, John, Second Timothy, Titus, First Peter, Second Peter, First John, Second John, and Jude. Is the church not being talked about there? So this is kind of a multi-tiered argument because they make this really bad argument, and there's a very easy counter to it, which is that he kind of referenced there that you can say, well, yeah, there are clearly the word saints is there, and that clearly represents Christians, people that. Uh, are are believers in Christ and saved by the blood of the Lamb. That is Christians, right? That's the church, right? They, that is in Revelation 4 through 18. And not just with the word saints. Let's look at a couple other things. In Revelation 7, which, by the way, is where pre-wrath says, this is right before the wrath of God starts, And so, of course, the rapture happens before that. And here we have this group show up in heaven right at the perfect time. And it says, After these things I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. How do you get to heaven if not being a Christian? And if you're a Christian, then you are in the church. So we have this group showing up in heaven. Now they would say these are the tribulation saints, which is really what their argument is going to be about. Let me tell you, they would love for this to be representative of the church, if it just wasn't in a, uh, an inconvenient place for them, and it didn't say that these people came out of the great tribulation, uh, which is uh, obviously antithetical to their position. But the fact that they're Christians is not is not a, a up up for debate. Uh, Here's another line about them. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are Christians. These are the church. And yes, they're in heaven. Uh, Quick sidebar on this. They, They have to say that the church is represented by the 24 elders because it appears where they want it to appear in the book of Revelation. Despite the fact that those same thrones are seen in other places in the Old Testament, it's probably, it's hard to prove this uh, exactly, but it's probably the divine council spoken of by um, Dr. Michael Heiser and others, but that's kind of hard to prove. But what is easy to prove is that nowhere in the book of Revelation, in these heavenly visions, does it even get close to allegorical, especially with enumeration of people and things. John is ultra-precise with his enumeration of things. He says in one sense, he he actually numbers a group, in one case, at 10,000 times 10,000, whatever that, that that formula he gives. 24 elders, uh, always giving you the number of angels. He, he's not in any way doing anything allegorical, at least in terms of enumeration, and probably in some of the other things that he's seen in a vision. He's commanded to write this, he's writing it down. This is a guy who's trying to get it right. So when he says 24 el- elders, he's almost, I mean, it would be unprecedented and it, it is all I'm trying to say here, that he, what he really means is this innumerable group of people from all tribes, nations, and tongues. He represents his 24 elders. It's a terrible argument, and they would much prefer to just have the church be the church. So let me show you how bad this argument is by demonstrating to you the picture of a circular argument. Their opening salvo is, the word church does not appear in the book of Revelation chapters 4 through 18. The counter-argument to that is, well, yeah, it kind of does, both in the use of the word saints, which appears 59 times, and in many cases are provably referring to Christians, and the fact that clearly the references to the church are all through there, people that believe in Christ that are saved by the blood of the Lamb. The church clearly does appear in Revelation 4 through 18, both in heaven and on earth and being persecuted by the Antichrist, etc. Their counter-argument to that is, ah, but those are tribulation saints. Your counter-argument to that is, well, aren't tribulation saints actually Christians and therefore the church? So doesn't the church actually appear in Revelation 4 through 18? Their counter-argument to that is, uh, yeah, okay, well, you're right. I mean, if you put it like that, then maybe our argument is bad. This is what the counter-argument to that is. Well, then how in the world do you know... That the Christians, which we both agree are Christians, and therefore the church, which you just agreed, this is a terrible argument to use because the church does in fact exist in Revelation 4 through 18, even with your narrow view. How do we know that those Christians in Revelation 7, for example, in heaven, or those that are being persecuted by the Antichrist, are tribulation saints and not the actual church? How, How do you what are you doing to make that distinction? And this is where it gets full circle. They say, Well, because the church doesn't appear in Revelation 4 through 18 in our view, in the view that we like. In other words, this is entirely based on their presupposition. They can't view the church in Revelation 4 through 18 because of their pre-tribulationalism. So really, they're just using the tribulation saints idea as a tool and not a very uh, good one that can stand up to argumentation to to explain why the church is being persecuted by the Antichrist and why the church is raptured around the sixth seal as opposed to uh, when they want it to be. Uh, So really, make no mistake, this isn't, as Hitchcock would want you to believe, an argument for pre-tribulationalism. What it really is, is a desperate attempt to explain why the church does appear in the book of Revelation, uh, especially at the sixth seal being raptured into heaven and also being persecuted by the Antichrist in the biography section about the Antichrist. Before I leave this point, I wanted to address uh, a, almost certainly a counter-argument they would make to my earlier point, which is that uh, the the word church doesn't appear in lots of books in the Bible. Like I said, uh, 2 Timothy, John, Mark, Luke, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, all those. And they would say, well, in this case, the word church did appear up until uh, Revelation chapter 4. And then we don't see it anymore. So that argument doesn't work here because it did appear and then it's conspicuously absent from the rest of the book. Now, the counter argument to this is really simple. First of all, this is kind of unfalsifiable. What they are wanting to see because we already saw the church is in that section. But what they want to see is the word church, which never really even means in the book of Revelation what they want it to mean. In other words, you can't please them because, uh, and this is from this is from Alan Kirchner who wrote on this, nowhere in the book of Revelation does the use of the word church ever denote the church in its totality, nor in the sense of the faithful universal church. It just wasn't used that way either here in Revelation or hardly any in the New Testament at all. In other words, the way we use church in our modern vernacular is to refer to Christians. Basically, it's synonymous with the word Christians. But that's not necessarily true, and certainly not in the book of Revelation, where it was used to refer to a specific church, the church of Thyatira, the church of Sardis, etc. It's just not used that way, and they're expecting it, they're rather demanding it to be used that way in the other places. And here's just the obvious point. The reason it's not is because that first section is about the seven churches. It's doing something with a seven churches section that it's not doing with the rest of the book of Revelation. That's just how the narrative goes in the book of Revelation. So this is a terrible argument all the way around. I hope I've been able to convey that to some extent.
1: The the second point I'd have is the rapture versus the return. And this is something most of us are familiar with. There's a, there's a disharmony or a discrepancy between the way the rapture is described in Scripture and the way the return of Christ is described in Scripture. Now, one of the things that tribbers always get accused of is we believe in two second comings of Christ. You know, they say, well, you believe in a, a first coming and then a, a second coming and then a third coming. And you know, we have these two comings. Well, the way we would argue against that is we would say, no, there's, there's a coming of Christ, but it's going to occur in two phases. Or it's going to occur in, in two stages. And the distinct differences between these two phases of Christ's coming are harmonized successfully by the pre-trib uh, position.
0: I'm going to cut off his argumentation because it's not really relevant for our purposes. What he's doing is arguing against a particular post-tribulational belief that the rapture and Armageddon are basically at the same event. So he's going to go through this huge list of proof texts to say, hey, the rapture is a distinct and different event from Armageddon, which of course we would believe. Some further clarification of what I mean here is that both pre-wrath and pre-trib would agree that the rapture is a different event than Armageddon, and that there is a significant amount of time between the rapture and Armageddon, though, though the two would uh, argue about how long that time frame is between the two, but they would both say that they're two distinct events. It's interesting, though, that the nuance of the coming of Christ, the parousia of Christ being one event that includes multiple things is starting to even be believed by pre-tribulationalists. This is something that pre-wrath had been arguing from the beginning that the parousia, the coming of the king, started with The first event in that parousia was the rapture, but the entire parousia, this one coming, the one parousia includes lots of events, including the judgments and all the way up until Armageddon and and some would say uh, through the millennium or however you want to parse it. But the point is that it really is one coming that includes multiple things. That's a nuanced view that Pre-Rath has been proposing that is now even being accepted by prominent pre-tribulationalists like Craig Blazing and others. I didn't mean to confuse any of you out there. Basically, I'm just saying that, yes, both pre-tribbers and post-tribbers believe, if you want to call it two comings, we believe that the rapture and Armageddon are two distinct events separated by a certain amount of time. Therefore, this argument is nothing but a argument against a post-tribulationalist view. And it brings up another point that, as we're going to see with his other arguments, these are only seven arguments that he had a chance to say, hey, let's let me show you the best arguments for pre-tribulationalism. And most of them are arguments just against another view, which of course doesn't argue for pre-tribulationalism. Unless there really only was two options in the world, then it might be considered an argument for pre-tribulationalism. I mean, if you asked a pre-rather, he's got seven options to prove the pre wrath rapture is true, you would do like you would any other doctrine. You would show proof text. We would turn to Matthew 24, we would turn to Revelation 6, Revelation 7, Daniel 12, 2 Thessalonians 2. We would prove the pre wrath rapture like you would another doctrine. If you wanted to prove the divinity of Christ, what would you do? Well, you might go to Genesis, you might go to John 1. My point is, there is a pattern to proving a doctrine. And you never see that with arguments for pre-tribulationalists. You get these weird things like there's no uh, church in this uh, passage of scripture. There is the Jewish wedding. granted, Granted, he doesn't make that argument, but even he makes the point earlier in this uh, argument that John Walvoord's 50 reasons to believe the pre-trib rapture are mostly really bad arguments. He even says that at the beginning of this uh, audio. But the arguments that he keeps, his seven arguments that he keeps, most of them are arguments against post-tribulationalism. Can you imagine another list like this for any other doctrine? So you asked me to prove the divinity of Christ, and instead my arguments are like... um uh, the Watchtower Society doesn't really speak for God. Uh, these little magazines that they point out clearly are not inspired. I mean, arguments against the Watchtower Society is not an argument for the divinity of Christ.
1: The third argument, or the E in our, uh, in our acronym here, would be the exemption from divine wrath. The exemption from divine wrath. Now, all four of the main views of uh, the timing of the rapture believe that God's church will be spared uh, from his wrath. Uh, Pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, and post-trib. All of the views agree that we're going to be spared from God's wrath. But the two questions really are these. When does the wrath start, and how does God spare us from the wrath? Pre-tribbers would say the wrath starts at the very beginning of the 70th week, and the method God uses to protect us from it is, is evacuation. We're gone. Pre-wrath would say the wrath doesn't start the day the Lord doesn't start till about three-quarters of the way through or five and a half years in, and the method God used to spare us from it is to take us out. So it's a real key issue in this whole discussion of when does the wrath start. The problem that I see with all of the other views is I believe that the wrath of God begins at the beginning of the 70th week. But the problem with the the mid-trib view and the pre-wrath view is, in my estimation, they start the wrath too late. They believe the wrath doesn't start either till the midpoint or three-quarters of the way through. The problem is all 19 of the judgments, and I say 19 because the, the uh, sixth, seventh seal contains the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. So the 19 judgments that are unleashed are all the wrath of God. When you go to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, it is the lamb there who's opening uh, the seals there on uh, this will or this, this uh, last testament, this document that he has there. Which I think that's what the, uh, the seven sealed scroll, I believe that scroll is, uh, is a will. The only document that we know of in in those times that was sealed by seven seals of seven witnesses was a last will, a testament. And so I think it's the Lamb there, the Lord Jesus, taking uh, the the will or taking the inheritance. And of course, this will has to be opened one seal at a time. And as these judgments then are unfurled, ultimately, the will is opened. The inheritance belongs to Christ. And he takes the kingdom in Revelation uh, chapter 20. But the word wrath is found uh, in Revelation 6, 16 and 17 with the sixth seal. And of course, what the pre-wrath folks say is they think that uh, the sixth seal is the sign of the coming of the day of the Lord. And they'll say, well, the the wrath doesn't start until the seventh seal. So they put the rapture between the sixth and the seventh seal because they say, look, the word wrath isn't mentioned uh, before that time. But again, remember, it's the lamb who's opening these seals. It's the Lamb who's unleashing uh, these seals. And here's another thing that's important. Although, while the word wrath isn't found until Revelation 6, 16 and 17, the famine, the sword, uh, the pestilence, and the wild beasts that are in the first four seals are, are judgments that are often associated with God's wrath in other places in the Bible. In the Old Testament, these terms are frequently used in conjunction uh, with the wrath of God. Also, did you notice in Scripture, we're never told how to prepare for the tribulation period. I've always wondered about that. You know, if we're going to have to go through this incredible time, you know, unlike unparalleled in human history, I think the Lord would throw in there a little stuff and say, by the way, when this time comes, here's what you need to do. We have a lot of people today telling us on earth all the stuff you need to do to get ready for all these times that are coming. The Bible never tells us how to get ready uh, for this unparalleled time of history. Okay, so there is a lot to cover here,
0: so I'll just go point by point. This one is called Exemption from the Wrath of God. He correctly points out that this actually isn't relevant for any of the views because they all believe that they are going to be exempt from the wrath of God. Uh, He clarifies the point to say it's really about... Uh, when does the wrath of God start? Which, of course, I would totally agree with. I think this is all about when the wrath of God starts. He simply says that the wrath of God, in his view, starts at the beginning of the seven-year period, which, of course, uh, I would not agree with. Really, that's the thing he needed to argue in this section, but he does not actually provide an argument for when he believes the wrath of God to begin is, but instead uh, makes various arguments against the pre-wrath and post-trib view. I should mention that this is an edit of obviously what he said, but I tried really hard to include anything that would help his case in the things that I'm going to be talking about. So to start off, he is going to make the case that the seals are the wrath of God. Remember, in the pre-wrath view, the seals are not the wrath of God. The seals on the outside of the scroll need to be removed before you can open the scroll. And the scroll, in the context of Revelation, is the trumpet and bowl judgment. So in the pre-wrath view, the wrath is actually the trumpets and the bowl judgments, the contents of the scroll, if you will. The seals, the, those things on the outside of the scroll, are not the wrath of God. They're just sort of precursors, things that are necessary to happen before you can open the scroll and, and, and the wrath of God begins. He keeps saying in this section that his proof for the reason that the seals must be the wrath of God is because... Jesus opens them. He just keeps saying, well, Jesus opens them. Now, that obviously doesn't logically follow that because Jesus opens them, uh, they must be the wrath of God. And he himself doesn't actually make the argument in this uh, presentation or in the paper. He's not saying what he really means by that, but I do know what he means. I've heard this argument in other places, so I'm going to kind of elucidate a little bit what he means by saying that Jesus is the one opening the seals, and therefore the seals must be judgment. Basically, it's sort of based off Revelation chapter 5, where there's a scene in heaven, they're saying, who is worthy to open this scroll, right? To break its seals, to open the scroll. Then it's determined, of course, that Jesus is able to open the scroll. They determine that he is worthy. It describes three three reasons that he is worthy to do this. We're all, they're all the same reason, mentioned three times, which was that he was killed. Worthy is the lamb who was killed. Uh, because you were killed, and at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God, persons from every tribe, language, people, and neighbors. The, his being killed makes him worthy. But in any case, he is worthy to open the scroll, which we know is to judge the world, which means opening the seals and the scroll. So that's where they would make the big point, is that he's opening the seals. He's, he's worthy to judge. Only Jesus is worthy to judge. So if the only one is that's worthy to break the seals is Jesus, and because Jesus has the authority to judge, therefore the seals are also judgment. I know that sounds a little confusing, and it's because it is. It's because it's a bad argument. Let me try to think of another way that they're trying to say it. It says here in Revelation 5, thus he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, it it mentions the seals specifically. It says he is worthy to open the seals, you know. So So somebody needs to be worthy just to open the seals. And they would make the argument that therefore they must be judgment. If you have to have some worthiness, to open just the seals, then they must be judgment. Do you see what I'm saying there? It still doesn't logically follow. I mean, you can use that same line, who's worthy to open the seals in the scroll, if in fact the scroll was just the wrath of God. You have to open the seals to get to the scroll in both real life and in this allegory. Um, So it doesn't logically follow. This is not a great argument. It's certainly not the kind of argument that you would pound the pulpit like he does here and say, we know that the seals are the wrath of God because Jesus opens the seals. It's not the kind of argument that you would hope to see if you're trying to prove a major doctrine. But as we're going to see, the real point of this is that Pre-Wrath has a bunch of arguments as to why the seals can't be the wrath of God. It's certainly not as simplistic as he will make it out to be here in a minute. But first, a little bit of a sidebar on the seven-sealed scroll concept in general. Uh, He says some things about it here. He says that uh, every seven-sealed scroll is a will. Now, I'm not sure why presenting this as a will helps him. I haven't really thought that through, but it is definitely not true. In fact, I don't think there have been that many seven sealed scrolls found in archaeology like that we know are seven sealed scrolls. But one I know for absolute sure uh, was one that's sometimes called the Sumerian Scroll found in 1962, dated to 333 B.C., and it was definitely not a will. It was a uh, basically a purchase document uh, saying that they owned a certain slave. In fact, there was a lot of those documents in this particular cave. These are people that were probably fleeing from, uh, from Alexander the Great. In any case, uh, I don't know where he's getting that, but I do know that pre-tribbers have for a long time done some really funny business with the seven-sealed scroll, trying to convince people that archaeology agrees with their theology. One good example of this is the placement of the seals. So this seven-sealed scroll, the one that we know of for sure here in archaeology, has all seven seals on the outside of the scroll meaning that you have to take each seal off, all seven of them off, in order to read the contents of the scroll. Now, a pre-tribber does not like that, that very much because it kind of sounds like the judgment is in the scroll and you got to take the seals off. What they really want to happen is they want to mix those seals all up in with the, with the scrolls. They want those seals to be judgment so bad that when I've heard this, when I was a pre-tribber, when I heard this presented to me, I'm not sure if they still do this. I was trying to look around to see people do this, but but back when I was a pre-tribber it was presented to me like, so you you break, there's one seal on the outside of the scroll. You need to break that seal and then you can roll the scroll up and read a little bit of the scroll. But then there's another seal over here that you have to break to roll the scroll and, and to read it even more. So they were essentially so, so desperate to mix the seals up with the scrolls, uh, obviously for their theology so that they could make the seals judgment. I'm not even sure that a scroll like that has ever been found. Uh, But in his defense, he doesn't actually make that argument here. That's just sort of a sidebar here. But the argument that he does make that all seven sealed scrolls are scrolls of wills is uh, something you'd expect a little bit more out of a PhD. I mean, it's a simple Google search to show that's definitely not true. So then he talks about pre-wrath specifically, and he says that pre-wrath believes that the placement of the word wrath in Revelation 6 is important to them. He doesn't really go into a lot of detail on what he means by that. And he wants his listeners to think that there's some kind, of that pre rathers are making some argument about the placement of the word wrath in Revelation 6, which he dismisses with the argument that Jesus is the one that opens his, the seals, which he goes back to for some reason that we've already talked about is not all that helpful anyway. But let's talk about what pre rathers actually uh, argue with Revelation 6. And it's certainly not about the placement of the word wrath. A pre rather will say in Revelation uh, chapter 6, starting in the, with the fifth seal, you have the fifth seal martyrs, those under the altar, asking God to judge those that have killed them. How long holy and true until you judge. Clearly, judgment does not seem to have happened yet. At least these fifth seal martyrs don't think so. We are confirmed that the judgment has not happened yet because God does what? He says, wait a little bit longer until basically some more are killed. You know, there there needs to be the full number of those that are killed before he judges. He gives them robes. We actually see them wearing those robes a little bit later in Revelation 7. Uh, But nevertheless, what do we see right after that? We then see the announcement of the wrath of God. We know it's the announcement of the wrath wrath of God because Joel 2.31 said it would be. Acts said it would be. The sun would grow as black as sackcloth. The moon would not give its light. The stars would fall from heaven. The whole thing The celestial disturbance sign is then what we see in Revelation 6. So we see this is going to be the beginning of the wrath of God. And we know it hasn't happened because Joel says, before the day of the Lord, you will see this. And then what do you see right after that? You see the wicked hiding themselves in caves saying, hide us, who can withstand the wrath of God has come, right? So they're saying the wrath of God has come. And it's the perfect placement for that. If you want to say it's about the word, it's kind of about the word. It's about about everything being completely perfect. It's about seeing the actual raptured saints in the next chapter. It's about how the trumpets and the bowls that follow that actually do look like the wrath of God. I mean, the very first trumpet, all of the green grass is destroyed compared to wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence. Uh, We'll get to famines and pestilence. He makes a point about that. Uh, We'll talk about it in a second. But I also wanted to uh, bring up something I just sort of noticed when I was uh, researching this and just comparing the seals versus the the trumpets, just to see if anything jumped out. And there was something that jumped out. Now, every single one of the seals, uh, John has said, there's a pattern. It says, come, so I looked, and here came a white horse. So we've got, in this case, one of the four living creatures said to John in a thunderous voice, come, so I looked. And he looks, and he sees this happening, Uh, this white horse, one on rode on it. Then, Then with the next seal... Then, then when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. And another horse, fiery red. So so this is almost like a passive kind of nature. We've got these living creatures uh, telling John to, to look at something, basically. That's what the pattern is. Living creature says, hey, John, look at that. Uh, next one, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. So I looked. Uh, lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, come. So I looked. Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, under the soul, so no living creature this time, but he's he's just seeing something, right? So there is a noticeable difference, and this is the point, when the seven trumpets begin, because the seven trumpets are all, from here on out, angels will be released to do this stuff. What I want you to notice about the seals is that there's no angels, unless you're going to say the, the four living creatures, which are telling John to look at stuff. Uh, the angels aren't accomplishing the judgment, right? But the angels are released with the, with the last seal, and they and then are given the seven trumpets. And then it starts, the pattern for the seven trumpets starts, uh, now the seven angels holding the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there was hail. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain. The third angel blew his trumpet and a huge star burning like a torch. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to earth. What's interesting, of course, is that there are a lot of verses that say that angels are going to be a part of this eschatological judgment. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come... In, in glory of his father with his angels, and they will repay every man according to his deeds. There's a they there, speaking of at least Jesus and the angels. What we know for sure, I could go 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, Revelation 7, 1 through 3 is, is interesting. I'll talk about that in a minute. We know for a fact that the trumpets and the bulls are carried out by angels. We, we've seen them carry out the trumpets. It's the same thing with the bulls. The angels are doing something with the trumpets and bulls that are not with the seals. There is a distinction there. And I think that's interesting. I don't know how interesting. It's just something I've noticed. But there is no angels with the seals. And look at Revelation 7, 1, 3. Doesn't this sound like um, maybe the judgment hasn't happened until the angels get involved? It says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God uh, on their foreheads. So there is this angelic uh, command not to harm the earth until they've sealed the one hundred and forty-four thousand, which contextually is after the seals have been opened and which everything as i've been saying seems to suggest that the wrath of god does not appear until the trumpets it just it's a very multifaceted argument and i haven't even brought in the all of it discourse and how it parallels the seals Um, but the point is that this is not about where the word wrath appears And those arguments that we just laid out need to be addressed, and it certainly doesn't go away by saying something like, Jesus opens the seals, so therefore they are the wrath of God. Or a second point uh, that he brings up here, which is that famine and pestilence, which are seen in the first few seals, are in other places in the Bible, some other places in the Bible, used as God's judgment. God sends famine in a few places in the Bible as a judgment, Uh, so he says that these are judgment. But This is obviously not a rule because there are plenty of famines in the Bible, Uh, the famine with Joseph in Egypt or in Ruth, or I'm sure there are others that are certainly not said to be judgments. Um, They could be sovereign acts of God to show God's glory or something. I mean, I'm sure God was involved, but the Bible doesn't say that they were judgments or uh, if they are judgments, why they were judgments. In other words, this is a bad argument. If you're going to say that judgments are always... Uh, or the famines are always judgments, then you're wrong, of course. So then what are you left with? This could be a judgment because famine exists. But really, it's a bad argument because the first seal, for example, is the Antichrist going out conquering and to conquer. Is that the wrath of God? Because that's that's the kind of argument he's making, it, it, that the Antichrist conquering and to conquer is the wrath of God. Is that the wrath of God? Because who is the Antichrist conquering? He's conquering, you know, in their view, tribulation saints. Is that the wrath of God on tribulation saints? Maybe maybe God's mad at those tribulation saints for, for not coming to Christ earlier. So it's the wrath of God on, on them. I mean, that's literally what some pre-tribulationalists have argued, at least the ones that have thought through their arguments. Um, okay, so moving on to some of the other arguments. And I didn't include his argumentation for what he really spends the lion's share of his time on here in this clip. Uh, as I said, I didn't include it, but it's basically talking against post-tribulationalism, trying to demonstrate that the wrath of God exists in Revelation. And obviously we would exi- you know, agree with that, that the trumpets and bowls and all of that are the wrath and etc. So he spends a lot of time on that. He spends a lot of time showing proof texts that the rapture occurs before the day of the Lord, which again is something that pre rath would entirely agree with. So I didn't include any of the audio from that section as well. I did include one last thing because I just think it's, well, I think it's a little frustrating. He says that he doesn't know any place in the Bible that says uh, how we're supposed to live during the so-called tribulation. Uh, I think it's disingenuous. I think it's uh, frustrating because if you probably asked him, does the Bible ever talk about like to the tribulation saints about how they should live during the tribulation? And be like, oh yeah, the Bible is like full of stuff for the pr- tribulation saints about how they should live. You know how they should die. Uh, you know the kind of people they should be. What they should watch for. Yeah, the, the the Bible talks to tribulation saints like all the time. So of course this is all about they don't want to see what they don't want to see. And so to them, they've never, I've never been told what to do about the end time. So clearly I'm not supposed to be there. So it's, you know, obviously a problem. I'm going to cut this podcast short here and just make a two-parter because I honestly didn't know I would ramble so long. And I, I'm sorry for... I think I was a little on edge during this podcast. And part of that, you probably heard, is that this leaf blower was going the whole time. And it's literally been three hours and I like had that amount of time blocked out to do this podcast. So I was just getting so frustrated about leaf blowers. And I, I apologize if I had just a little bit of edge to my voice. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I do want to say it is Christmas coming up. I'm about to go out of town here in a few days. So I don't know when I'll get to part two. I will try to kind of map it out and see what I'm going to say, but I don't know when I'll get a chance to record it since I'm going to be at the in-laws house and all that stuff. So, uh, anyway, go to the websites, Bible prophecy, talk, go to PreRathMovie.com and be sure to, uh, give, give me some suggestions for that title. How would you title, uh, the movie and, uh, let me know what you think. So see you next time. Thanks for stopping by.